want to take a few minutes to tell you about our latest sponsor, Benevity. Benevity is a company I know really well. Not only are they led by wonderful people who are driven by purpose and a desire to make a positive difference to the world, they're also global leaders in their field. So Benevity's technology facilitates workplace giving, volunteering, as well as grants management. It helps employees to deliver positive and meaningful impact through the support of different causes and different charities. And I know from personal experience, having used it only last week, that it really works and it's effective and efficient. So I wanted to give to a cause. I wanted my employee to match it. It all happened through through clicks online. Check them out. Go to the website, benevity.com. Highly recommend checking them out as a potential for your corporate, your business. Let's get back to the show. We risk losing very important values and very important part of our society if we degrade our community sector too much. Purpose Deep Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Welcome to Purposey with John McCarthy, manager of the Tyndall Foundation. The foundation was established in 1994 following the public listing of the Warehouse Retail Group. In 25 years, this private family foundation has donated over $200 million to causes across Aotearoa. The foundation is led by John and a small team of professionals on a day-to-day basis. However, the family, including the founders, are very much involved. Before we dive into that, can I ask a small favor? Whatever platform we're on, whether it's Spotify, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, can you just hit that follow button? It really helps me to get the message out there. Enjoy the episode. John McCarthy, really warm welcome to Purposely Podcast. Kia ora, Mark. Thank you. Kia ora. You're the manager of the Tyndall Foundation. Really familiar with what they do, and so will some of my guests, but I'd really love to know what the Tyndall Foundation's vision is for Aotearoa for New Zealand. That'd be That'd be a great place to start. Well, thanks. So I think the Tyndall Foundation is just trying to make a, well, our, our tagline says a, making a contribution to a stronger Aotearoa New Zealand. And, I, you know, I think those words are all important. We're really just about making a contribution. We're not the hero of the story here at all. You know, it's trying to help out where we can and work alongside people and communities where we can. But there are, you know, as with all funders, there is a, uh, there are some particular areas of focus. So, you know, we try to take a, a long-term, you know, intergenerational view around change and supporting change, particularly focused on increasing equity for children and families. And we've got a particular focus on early years in maternal mental health, on empowered and inclusive communities. We really believe in the power of communities and the strength of communities to you know, to know what works best for them and to, you know, to, with the right support and help to solve issues in their communities. And then thirdly, but by no means least, focused on climate change and particularly nature-based solutions to climate change and biodiversity improvement. And our trustees have in recent years challenged us and we're hopefully stepping up to that challenge and we're willingly doing it to prioritise things that reflect our Māori knowledge and Māori development and that's becoming an increasingly important part of our work, you know, hopefully in the wider philanthropic scene. And in terms of how you operate and looking from the outside in, there looks to be a real blend of different approaches. So so one is you make donations to good causes and that around generosity. Another way you work with others and sort of um, piggyback on their capacity 
to help communities. And, and I know that from firsthand being involved in the community foundation movement. And then, and then thirdly, sort of through, I guess, more investment or, or social learning, um, lending, like it's basically lending capital to try and make a positive impact in the ecosystem. Those, those three, have I covered the, the three approaches? You've done well at answering your own question, Mark. I possibly don't need to comment now, but, but I will, obviously. <laughs> I think the first point you make is an important one and a, and a distinction potentially uh, for the Tyndall Foundation. We don't regard ourselves as a grant maker. If anything, we make donations. And that simply reflects you know, the value of generosity and I guess the generosity that the Tyndall family, particularly uh, Stephen and Margaret, are making through the foundation. But it kind of normalises it too that you know, each of us in our own humble way is hopefully able to be generous. Some of it may be money and some of it may be in other ways, but you know, it kind of just normalises it that you know, they're, they're part of generosity, probably at a slightly larger scale than many of us, but well, most of us. But yeah, donations, I think, is, a, is an important word. Yes, we are uh, an investor and uh, the trustees have been investing in what is now called impact investment, but has had several labels over the years in, um, you know, through loans and taking equity or shareholding in different ventures. They've been doing that for 15 or 16 years or so and a whole range of things. And I suppose at the moment there'd be somewhere between 15 and 20 million invested in, in, uh, in a range of different things. And that's for mostly social or environmental return. I mean, it's good to get our money back and, you know, we generally do, but they're at terms, you know, are usually better than commercial terms. And we've lent and invested in those ways because we recognise that not everybody who approaches us necessarily wants a donation. If they've set up something that's more enterprising or a, a business that's trading for their income as well as doing social or environmental good, then we kind of meet them on those kind of commercial terms with a, a small C in the commercial and help them hopefully to get started down that track. So yes, we are and have been an investor for a long time. A third way that we are releasing funds is through our local donation manager network. And you've alluded to that in talking about the Auckland Foundation, which you had connection to and led. And uh, we've got 26 of those lo local donation managers based scattered around the country. And that's been a 20-year relationship or more, very high trust with those organisations. And we don't pretend to ourselves for one second that we could understand what's happening or what's needed in communities throughout Aotearoa from a small office in Takapuna. We definitely couldn't do that. And so we kind of rely on those, what we call local donation managers, to sort of be our eyes and ears. We distribute about a third of the foundation's funds each year through that channel. So the foundation distributes somewhere between 10 and 12 million thereabouts each year. So it's a reasonably sizable amount of money that goes out. And those local donation managers can make donations to who they think doing good work in their community and largely in the area of children and families. But, you know, there's a little bit for the environment and some broader community stuff too. So, yeah, so that works incredibly well for us. And We've, we're hoping that it, or we hope that it works for those organisations too, but particularly for the community foundations, gives them a little bit of profile and gives them, you know, some, particularly for the startup ones, some early experience in, you know, releasing funding and, and building connection to community. Yeah. Maybe 
the last one to talk about just quickly is the Next Gen Fund, which is a fund that the foundation set up about seven or so years ago, which is a fund that the Tyndall siblings, the five children, have access to, and they then distribute funds largely to the kind of youth mental health and youth arts area, and both of those might be connected in some of the giving that they do. But it comes under the umbrella of the Tyndall Foundation, but they have pretty much total autonomy to distribute funds through the Next Gen Fund as well. So that's, you know, just again, you know, another example of how I suppose the generosity of the Tyndall family is is being demonstrated. Wonderful. And, you know, assuming that when it was established in, in the early 90s, in 1994, that this though all those ways of working weren't necessarily written down on a piece of paper. And this is this is has come about through learning, failing, having successes, the sort of just an experience of what's impactful, what's not. Would that be would that be a fair assessment? Yes. I mean, you'd expect an organization that's 25 or 26 years old to have evolved a wee bit since day one. And I think that's right. So as you say, the foundation was set up on the, the you know, the public float or, you know, the sale of a of 49% of the warehouse, as it was in those days. And Stephen's share of that went to set up a venture capital company called K1W1 that invests in New Zealand, largely startup companies. And I think last count, there's somewhere over 200 companies that have been invested in. And, you know, that's hopefully doing good in that part of the world. But Margaret's share of that money went to set up the Tyndall Foundation. And because of Stephen's profile understandably people often you know assume that it was kind of Stephen's money that's behind the foundation it's actually Margaret's share of the money and you know that's a really important point for us as a staff team to keep in the front of our mind because it's kind of Margaret's values and the things that she cares about that really drive us and are at the heart of the foundation so you know that's incredibly important as I say to us as a staff team. Mm. We've definitely learned some things over the years. I've been here eight years or so, and I've certainly learned some things. And, you know, we we are, I think, a different and becoming a different organisation as we should be over time. I mentioned earlier that our trustees have challenged us in a good way about, you know, they've come to some understandings about the history of Aotearoa and the impact of colonisation on Māori communities and Māori whānau generally and the long tail of disadvantage that that has left behind and continues to. And they want to make some impact or some effect on that. So we've become, you know, hopefully a much more relational funder as a result of trying to work alongside, partner up with Māori communities and organisations in a careful way. You know, we've had a number of attempts at doing that in some regions and you know, hopefully are starting to get it right now, you know, trying to find the right doorway and the right uh, people to connect to. So we've certainly learned things there and we are learning and hopefully uh, starting to make some difference there. And I think we've also learned a bit, well, not a bit, we've learned about the importance of enabling communities. You know, we've where we've failed, I think, in the past, as I think other funders possibly have too, is where we've come in with outside solutions that are, you know, kind of, if not imposed on communities, just don't fit at all. And while a solution might work in one community, it's not necessarily the same in every community. So where we've had the best success is where, you know, initiatives are grown out of, authentically out of communities. And, you know, we build on the strength and capability 
of those communities to to solve the problems. No, absolutely. I can see how that learning came into play. In terms of power, I think is a fascinating one. So you you have as a private philanthropic organization the power or the ability to be choosy to make donations or make investments that um you don't have to justify to a whole lot of stakeholders but power you know a really interesting thing and i guess the big thing for you guys is you you don't want to fund initiatives where there potentially could attract other funding from other sources you want to be part of the problem and sort of be at that sweet spot that your money makes the most difference to fit with your themes yeah, look, I think the point you raise around power is is 100% right. You know, we've got to be very cautious and careful about the influence that we have and use. And we're conscious of, you know, how it has been used and maybe misused in other countries, hopefully not so much here. So we're conscious of that, but power can be used in support of communities and organisations. We do have a bit of influence. You know, we, we try and use it carefully and conscientiously, but it would be naive to think that we didn't have influence. So maybe that is a tool in the toolbox that we can use uh, sparingly, but occasionally and in partnership with others. So we wouldn't do that on our own. And to your question about collaboration or wanting to be the, you know, the funder that makes the most difference, not at all. We're, we're a very happy collaborator and would happily do more of that. I think Again, we'd be naive to think that we have the resources or the ability to resource, you know, things that might be requested by communities or needed by communities to make change there. So, you know, where we can collaborate, if that's with other philanthropic funders or some of the community trusts or with communities themselves, with uh, with iwi Māori organisations and with government, we will do that and have done that, you know, in some cases done that, I think, really successfully Hopefully, it's had successful outcomes for community. So, no, we're a very happy collaborator, of course. Yeah, and in terms of risk, and you know, not all initiatives work, not all, are all successful, or maybe not obvious the the success or the or the impact. What's the sort of risk threshold in terms of? Like you obviously do due diligence on projects. You make a call, but if you're working with some people who are really hard to reach, or you know, they're, they're, the distance for them to travel to have a changed life is, is significant. Will you? Do you find yourselves, or do you find the trustees will happily make those sometimes tougher decisions? Yes, yes. Look, I think you know. Someone said to me, it might have been Trevor Gray, who was the previous manager here. He's a very wise man. And he said to me once, you know, family foundations, you know, set up by people who want to spend money and, you know, be innovative and largely staffed by people who are not. And that was a, a really nice warning to me, or I took it as not quite a warning, but as a, a very nice piece of advice and guidance. Happily, you know, it's, it's interesting, I find anyway, that, you know, one of the lovely things about family foundations is that they've usually been established either by, directly by people or as a result of the wealth that's been generated by people who are entrepreneurial or quite innovative. And we're very lucky. We have our founders still at the table. Not everyone in family philanthropy is that fortunate. But we have an entrepreneur sitting at our table. And again, that entrepreneurial spirit, it's not pervasive throughout the organisation, but it's certainly here. And so we do have a risk appetite framework and we're very risk averse to some things, but we're not particularly risk averse to innovation or having a go at some things to just see if they work. And not just, you know, idly doing that, but fairly frequently in the last few years had people come to see us with, you know, an idea that they have 
that's maybe not quite a fit for us or quite yet ready to be launched, but through careful conversation and some gentle panel beating, it can be brought into shape where it's something that we can support and we don't mind a bit of innovation and a bit of something a bit new. That said, I think we've got to be careful as funders. We're always looking for the new and the bright and the shiny. So we don't mind a bit of the ordinary and tried and true. And it's lovely, again, around our trustees table, we've got both ends of that spectrum represented. So we can have very far-reaching and high-level conversations and very aspirational conversations about the difference we might want to contribute to in Aotearoa. And that's all fine. And then we'll also get a, a little reminder from maybe the other end of the table to say that's all very well and good. But please also just confirm that, if that's the word, that the Tyndall Foundation's money is also being used to support good people to get out of bed in their communities every morning and get good stuff done. So we love working at a grassroots level and we love working at systems change level and where the two join up is the sweet spot for us. And you mentioned the phrase before, relational philanthropy or relational funding. And I imagine because, you know, you guys are very public, your organization is high profile. Everyone knows, you know, jump on your website and work out who the trustees are. You as a manager will be approached frequently, typically by people who want something. Do you guys sort of work hard about how you as a foundation show up like on a daily basis and then... I guess part of the challenge, right, is, is sometimes saying no, you touched not just then, but ha- is how you say no or, or, you know, but very being very conscious of how you show up daily and what you say and what you do. Yes. Well, there's a couple of bits of that question. I'm actually smiling as I heard the question. Some of that relates to, you know, our profile and we definitely don't seek public profile at all. In fact, our trustees are quite hard on us about that. We have, you know, some comms support here, but we use that common support mostly to promote the organisations that we're partnering with and working with or, you know, releasing funds to. So it's certainly not for the benefit of the Tyndall Foundation or the, certainly the Tyndall family. They're way too humble for that. And if I as the manager, you know, if the trustees got wind that I was kind of planning some great comm strategy to promote the work of the Tyndall Foundation, I'd be shut down pretty quickly, I think. The question also, Mark, contained a bit about, you know, saying no and, you know, what our attitude is here around that. And you're right, we do get approached. And of course, that's the job. And I'm kind of fortunate in some ways because I came from to this job from the other side of the checkbook. I came from working in the community sector for 25 years or so and have had my hand out plenty of times. Thankfully, people just said yes a few times, and sadly, a few people said no to me a few times. So I kind of understand that the name of the game. But how you say no and how you, and also how you exit from relationships is very important and has to be done you know, respectfully and carefully. Some funding relationships are purely transactional, you know, and, and the community or the community organisation uh, certainly in my experience, doesn't want more than that. They don't need a relationship with the Tyndall Foundation. They just want the money to get on and do the good work they do. Tell us how they got on at the end of it and away we go. No problem. Others are much more nuanced and longer term and warmer, closer relationships. We wouldn't impose that on people at all. I hope we don't anyway. We certainly welcome that where we've got long-term work to do. Where we have to say no, hopefully we do it respectfully and we give good reason for it. Where we're exiting from relationships, sometimes it's possible to find another funding pathway, but sometimes it's not. And so we have to 
exit from that funding relationship. And we would hopefully, and hopefully we do do that with some plenty of warning, so we're not leading people to sudden shock or whatever. Our trustees are happy to fund multi-year, so typical donation for us would be a three-year donation, and we've got many that are a lot longer than that. Recently, we ended a 10-year relationship, and we're in the process of exiting that now. So hopefully done with everyone's mana intact and, and you know, the, the organisation can continue, but without us as a partner. I think it's just, you know, how to say no well as, as part of be, being a good funder and investor. Yeah. And so you've been in the role for a while now. I've got down here 2014, but I could have that wrong. In terms of how you show up and how you maybe looking at those sort of early mistakes you may have made around communication or approaches or have you changed much in the time that you've been in the role and (laughs) and has your approach changed? I hope so. Over that period of time, I definitely hope so. Look, I have, I've, um, I mean, I hope I haven't lost my understanding of how community and the community organisations operate and the strain and stress on those organisations and particularly the stress around funding. As I say, coming from that sector, I had my hand out over many years a lot. And I've certainly had many days in my in managing in the community sector, many days when I looked at our the parlour state of our finances and literally wondered how I was going to pay the staff the next week. So I, I get the stress and pressure that's caused by funding difficulties, quite apart from the pressures that are caused by the um, sometimes incredibly complicated and I think becoming more complex issues that organisations and communities are trying to solve. So hopefully I show up respectfully and out of great respect for what community and community organisations are trying to do. You know, we lament here the the degradation, I think, of community organisations because of the vagaries largely of government funding and contracting, but also the kind of the lack of acknowledgement of how important the community sector and community organisations are to Aotearoa. There would barely be a month go by, I'd say, in the average New Zealander's life where, to some extent, seen or unseen, they're the beneficiary of some either voluntary or paid work done by a community organisation. A lot of it is unseen and I think is undervalued, but we risk losing very important values and very important part of our society if we degrade our community sector too much. So we're, we're really aware of that. I mean, the, you know, it's ironic that we're talking at this time. So we've just had the Auckland floods a couple of weeks ago and first out of the blocks in terms of support for families affected by that were kind of community organisations we're talking about now. And yet that's happening at a, this very same time in Auckland as Auckland Council is proposing to have quite drastic cuts to community organisations. The assumption is that family foundations and others like us will fill that gap. No one's asked us whether that's okay and whether we can or will, but the irony of those two events uh, hasn't escaped me. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you I know from you know, previously talking to you, but from what we just said, you're really passionate about the community. And I just I was keen to change tack for a bit and take you back in time and then land at, at sort of a bit more about your career and then, and then how you got hired by Tyndall Foundation, but taking you back and just reflecting on your past, so early years, what was about your early years that meant that you would end up 
focused, so focused on community and maybe like looking outside and maybe at the sort of um, giving up the commercial life and, and maybe, you know, using your talents for uh, making as much money as possible. But what about your early years led to community life? Well, yes, yeah, sure, Mark. Well, first of all, a disclaimer, I've never worked in the commercial sector and I doubt I ever will. And I certainly have no talent for making money. So we'll just get that cleared up straight away. Look, you know, I think life and experience shapes us and certainly, you know, I'm no different to anybody else. I grew up in Wellington, Irish Catholic family, and those values were all encompassing really in the neighbourhood and in the community that I grew up in. And, you know, I feel fortunate to a large extent to have had those values available to me. You know, I think they've informed my sense of justice and fairness and concern and compassion, hopefully, and work that I've done and hopefully bring that to to this job too. So my early years were happy years. I'm the eldest of three children. So mum and dad and and, uh, and myself and 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 my brother and sister. But my sort of later childhood and teenage years, less though, less happy. You know, very sadly, my mother became very ill when I was about 12 or 13 and pretty much she was bedridden for a year or so. Uh, during those years, and she died when I was 14. And so that that had quite an impact on my family, obviously. One of the big impacts was that my brother, uh, the next eldest to me, was taken into foster care. I think a kind of a friendly arrangement that was made in order to relieve some pressure from mum and dad at the time. But he went into care at about age 11 or 12 and never came home. And still to this day, you know, affects him not badly, but he has that same question that a lot of children who are taken into care still have. Why was I taken into care and why was it me? So we certainly had a, you know, we we were a household that wasn't wealthy in any way. In fact, we were probably the receivers of charity more than anything else, particularly as a result of mum being not so well. And we certainly experienced the kindness of, of people around us. It also, and this stays with me and I think has helped to shape some of the attitudes I bring to various roles that I've had, but I'm not being critical in any way, shape or form. I'm incredibly grateful for the kindness and generosity we were shown, but there is a shame that comes with that, or we certainly felt at times that we were kind of not as good as, or, you know, we couldn't fend, people thought we couldn't fend for ourselves, or people might be talking about us and the community and in ways that makes me a bit squeamish to think about what that might have been. But I don't want to in any way downplay the kindness of of those people. But it has certainly taught me a lesson about if we are going to be charitable or generous, there are ways to do this in ways not that, you know, preserve people's dignity or or mana or or whatever the word is for that. So anyway, then we continued and, and then Sadly, then we lost our father when I was aged 18. He died suddenly of a heart attack without warning. So we were left, my brother and sister and I, without really relatives in New Zealand. My dad was, he's from a family of 14, born in Ireland and Cork in Ireland and moved to New Zealand in the 50s, the only one of his family that did. And my mother was an only child. So the only close relative we had in New Zealand was still living was her father, who sadly at the time was starting to um, suffer from Alzheimer's. So we were kind of a, a little bit alone. And I think that did teach me about standing on my own two feet and being independent and how to, you know, to manage myself in those situations. There was quite a bit to manage, as you, as you can imagine. My brother is still alive, but sadly, my sister was 
she was killed about 25 years ago. She was murdered by someone who broke into her home one sunny November afternoon and assaulted her and killed her, murdered her in front of her and her husband's then 11-month-old baby and another child that she was looking after at the time for a friend for the afternoon. So sadly, we lost our sister in those traumatic circumstances. And, you know, as I say, you know, life shapes you and experience shapes you. And thank goodness I'd learned to be a bit independent and have a little bit of resilience so we could manage our way as a family through that. Yeah, so... You know, a bit of tragedy in there. A lot of families, you know, have similar things. I consider myself to be very fortunate. You know, I'm, you know, very, very good family. Kath and I have been together approaching 40 years. Two lovely kids, you know, are out there in the world doing their own thing. Uh, got a, a brilliant job, friends and, and wider family. So, and actually connected now with the, the big Irish family that I have overseas through Ireland and the UK and Canada. So I, I'm fortunate to be in touch with them and, and even see them reasonably regularly. So yeah, I consider myself really fortunate. Yeah. And through those really dark times and, you know, like what did, do you remember what you drew, drew on? Like what were the things that kept you going and kept you functioning? Yeah. A, well, a few things, you know, I think, you know, I, I wouldn't call myself a religious person, certainly more, but, you know, I think there is a, a kind of a, a deeper kind of faith or spirituality that I, you know, I do believe in something that's kind of bigger than us, whether I don't think it's necessarily a being, but I think there is a kind of a, there's a life force or energy that's bigger than all of us. And I believe because of that, that there are there is more goodness than there is badness in the world. There are more good people than there are bad people. And I kind of have to believe that, otherwise it might be hard to kind of keep going. But kind of those, you know, those early values and so on. And then obviously, you know, family and friends, we were very fortunate when I was a child to grow up, lived in the same house in the same neighbourhood all our lives. So we pretty quickly had neighbours and friends come in and, and help, as people do. And that's been the, the same throughout my life. I've been very grateful for the, some of the long-standing friends and friendships that I had. Mm. But it's I remember after Joe was killed and we went through a very long trial in the High Court, six or seven weeks, and after that I was approached by some people who I think were part of setting up what became or what might have been the, the nascent so-called sensible sentencing trust. And I was invited to come to a meeting and I, for people who were interested in reform of the justice system. And I was working in that kind of area at the time professionally, so kind of had a personal and professional interest in it. And I went to this meeting and it was a room full of very angry people. I remember saying to a, a woman at one stage in the meeting, I can't live angry and bitter like you are and she kind of grabbed my arm and looked at me fiercely and and said but you have to be angry and I said to her I can't I can't be I can't live my life angry you know it would destroy me I think as it possibly would destroy most people so I I didn't go back to the second meeting and I'm very glad that I didn't I tend to be someone who tries to be constructive and find solutions to things rather than I certainly didn't take on the identity of a victim and I and I don't feel like I am one yeah, because when listening to you, I I was wondering where, what did you do with that anger? And did you, is it around you found yourself growing up very quickly? Like the. Yeah, well, when, by the time, if we took just talking about Joe's death, you know, by the time Joe was killed, you know, we were all adults and, you know, well underway. And we, I mean, just practically, I had two young kids. I needed to get out of bed every morning and look after them, or along with Kath, look after them. So, you know, there's something very practical and, kind of healing that about that it kind of takes you forward into the day and kind of forces you to focus on the practical and the here and now 
But I remember thinking at the time that that this happened, you know, that there had to be some deeper meaning to all of this. And if only I could find what it all meant, then that would help me. I've learned actually, well, I couldn't find any meaning in this. It was a senseless act and totally random and out of the blue. It honestly could have happened to anybody, sadly, and somewhat scarily. So I kind of stopped worrying about whether I could find any meaning about that and just kind of got on with life, really. And that, and as I say, I don't live angry and I couldn't live angry. I certainly feel a deep sadness, sadness and regret. We think of Joe and talk of Joe a lot and the hole that she left and still leaves in our family. My kids never got to meet their auntie. A young boy lost his mother. He has no memory of. So there's certainly tragedy in it. And the sadness about that is not far away, but I don't, I don't and I couldn't feel angry about it because, I, as I say, I think it, it would just destroy me, as it would most people. Yeah. And what you've been through, does has it sort of intentionally made you want to whatever you do is going to count, it's going to help people impact you really directly. Like, did, has it, because you ended up in, you ended up in social work, didn't you? But has all of what you've been through, were you sort of front of loaf? You're like cognizant about this, I've got to make a difference in people's lives and I've got to see it on a daily basis? Or was that path already set? No, I don't think, I mean, I, I certainly want to see difference made and I'm trying to be fairly purposeful. I don't have front of mind, and I, I certainly don't want to be painted as some kind of tragic figure. I, I definitely don't feel like that, and I, hopefully not. But uh, So I don't have really that front of mind. I don't think that's much of a driver. I mean, I do, I do hold on to those basic values of justice and fairness and, and, a, des- and yeah, a deep desire to make a difference. You know, why are we here? And aren't we fortunate to, and aren't I fortunate to have had jobs and opportunities you know, to try and make a difference. But again, in this role as a funder, we're not the hero of the story by a long shot. We're a bit of, well, I was going to say gas in the tank, but you're not allowed to say that anymore. We're a bit of charge in the battery and we stay humble and we should stay humble in that role. Where we can help, we should. But yeah, and so I'm, I'm certainly driven to help and to make a difference where I can. And I do feel like there isn't time to waste. People in communities don't have time to waste. Families who are in kids who are in need don't have time to waste or wait either. So we should work as fast as we can, but as you know, carefully and respectfully as we can. I certainly feel motivated by that. Yeah, yeah. Because just an observation for me, like you're, you're clearly a deep thinker. You're, you know, you're, I think you're a smart person. But a lot of what I see in you is uh, humility or humble. You, you work hard at that, you, or you hold that humility as a really strong guiding principle would that be a fair assessment of of yourself look i try to definitely and it's certainly it's a value that's held strongly here in the foundation which is you know probably why i can work here uh, happily enough yeah yeah and in terms of your past career so you had lots of different experiences and and i love the fact that the tinder foundation will be drawing on all your previous experiences so i'm thinking time with lifewise the safe network was there sort of, um, were you quite intentional with what you did with your career or, or was it just you went along for the ride? <laughs> no, no no plan, Mark, which means, you know, I was open for open for business or open for opportunity, really. And I feel very fortunate that opportunities came my way, that I was the right time and hopefully the right person. So, yeah, I, I trained as a social worker and worked for a number of years as a social worker. Got into the child protection field. I had a bit of a stint in the UK and and worked in that field, came back to New Zealand in the early 90s and was offered a job at Starship Hospital, which 
turned out to be half-time in the children's cancer ward, paediatric oncology ward, and half-time in the child abuse team. And back in the early 90s, the issue of child sexual abuse was, in my view anyway, was being rediscovered. You know, it had never gone away. It just kind of been buried, you know, in the way in which things that are kept secret uh, often are. But it was kind of being rediscovered. It was becoming an issue. Children were disclosing this stuff. I mean, it seems almost unbelievable these days, but children were largely not believed. Anyway, I became involved and in, we had a, an evidential interview unit at Starship Hospital or what became Starship Hospital. I was one of the first staff in there when it opened. We had an evidential interview unit where we'd interview children who had disclosed abuse or had worrying behaviours and were they to disclose abuse, obviously that went to the police and to child use and family and so on. There were a number of boys that needed to be interviewed or assessed and I was the only male social worker in the team and I'd had a bit of experience. So got involved in that work that led me to a group of men and women who a bit like me were thinking well this issue of child sexual abuse if we're going to make any difference here if we're going to stop it we've got to address the problem at the perpetrator level yeah so long story short in 1992 a few of us got together and formed what was called the safe network or the safe program as it's known sort of more colloquially and I ended up helping to start up that organisation and ended up managing it for a few years in the late 90s and early 2000s, having just worked as a in a number of different roles and contractor and so on in that organisation. Brilliant organisation, still going, very, very successful and had to unpick a lot of myths in that work. And a lot of people looked at us, and I love this actually, people who look at you and think you're going to fail or this will never work. And then it does. And yeah. it was deeply satisfying to do that. But again, you mentioned the word humble. It was deeply humbling to watch men and teenagers, and we had literally hundreds through the programs, very big issue through the program, watch people confront themselves in very real ways and change. It was a long process, 18 months to two years of individual and group and family counselling and therapy. I'm not excusing their behaviour for one second. But it was good work. And we, I think we did some good things there. You know, we started a, a program, a Māori treatment program, which was the first of its kind. We set up a program for internet offenders when the internet was becoming more of a thing in a dangerous place. We got a, a contract out of the Department of International Development in, in the UK to set up the social work service on Pitcairn Island during the sexual abuse trials over there. And it was fortunate enough to have a role in setting up NetSafe with Liz Butterfield and Claire Balfour at the time which is still going today, you know, around internet safety for, for kids online and a bunch of other stuff. But it was a pretty dynamic, almost kind of felt almost pioneering work, and it was. And uh, I'm glad to see that the organisation is still going. Sadly, the work still can, needs to continue. But. And, and in terms of like breaking the cycle, but working at the end, you worked out with the perpetrator. Yeah. I guess you came face to face with stigma and uh, probably got some stick from people, but was that evident? Yeah, it was to some extent. I mean, in that role, it became a little bit high profile. You know, I did this willingly. There were obviously requests from media a lot to comment on issues of child sexual abuse as it was, as I say, becoming more and more to the attention of the public and certainly the media. There was a need to be educated, not just educating the media and the general public, but particularly parents about some of the, the myths and realities of people who sexually abuse and might want to abuse their child. So I saw it as an important platform not to advocate in any way, shape or form for the offenders that we were treating, but for the importance of treatment because it was bloody successful. And we saw ourselves as part of the prevention, 
but also an, an educative role more widely around public safety. So, yeah, I think people possibly looked a bit suspiciously at us, but we were a very professional organisation, you know, hopefully well run and well looked after and, and resourced in that regard and had a lot of help from people with experience from overseas who came and audited our program and reviewed stuff and made that public. So we did research, which we published to be accountable for what we were doing and the success of the work. And we also had good connections to organisations that work with victims of sexual abuse and worked quite collaboratively with them, a really important part of the work, and hopefully supported each other to give credibility to work in a pretty difficult and secretive area. And the call came from the Tinder Foundation. Is it a job that you applied for? Like, How did it, how did it come about and, and what was your reaction when the opportunity arose? Well, I'd been working at LifeWise running that organisation, which had a very broad range of things from early childhood education through to older person's care and a few stops in between some mental health and addiction work and housing and homelessness and community development stuff and so on. Very good organisation. And I'd I'd been brought on there to make change. It was the old Methodist mission and they were up for change. So we we structurally changed the organisation and kind of refreshed it a wee bit, gave it a new name and I hope a bit of a sense of direction. And I'd been really focused there, particularly in the area of homelessness, on getting our house in order and getting our strategy congruent with our story. Because we told ourselves for 100 years that we were solving homelessness when we were not, just we were just managing the problem. We had a soup kitchen and a, we ran the, co-ran the night shelter and a bunch of stuff like that. But all that was doing was really supporting people to stay homeless on the street. So I'd you know, done a few things there. We'd closed the soup kitchen and we opened a cafe called the Merge Cafe on K Road, which was just kind of normalising the transaction of how people get food. And it was open to anyone. Anyone in the community can come in and have a cheap and cheerful meal or a choice of the blackboard menu if you felt like something fancy. But it, rather than be an exclusive service that was only for people who were homeless and further marginalised and isolated people, hopefully brought people in contact with each other. We brought a guy out from America who was, the, I think, the President Bush's homeless advisor in the White House, a guy called Philip Mangano. That would be back in, I don't know, 2009, 10, something like that. And he introduced us to this idea of housing first, so rather than just support people to remain homeless on the street or into transitional housing in some way, shape or form, support them directly off the street into their permanent home and wrap around support, uh, wrap support around them to, that enables them to stay there and address the issues that made them homeless in the first place. Made total sense to me. When we kind of said we were going to do that, people, even in the homeless sector, kind of laughed at us and said, it'll never work. And we've all tried this before and it'll never work. I was really pleased after the first year we'd house 50 of them and nearly all of them had stayed in their housing that we that, that had been provided. So, Wonderful. you know, and then we had a role or I had a role in setting up Te Kuti or Timatanga Ho, which is the homeless court, I guess the New Beginnings Court down at the district court with Judge Fitzgerald and the head of the downtown police at the time, a guy called Ben Offner. And we worked together to set up that court because otherwise the court had been just a, a revolving door of people being who were homeless being picked up for kind of relatively minor offences on the street. And that all they did was just compile fines that they had no ability to pay. They'd end up in prison for a short period of time and then they'd come out straight back to the street and the whole cycle would start again. So yeah. anyway, I had a bit of contact with the Tyndall Foundation through some of that work. And maybe it was that, I don't know. But anyway, Stephen got in touch with me one day back in, I don't know, late 2013, I think it was, and asked me to come over and see him at his office about something. So I came over and we had this conversation that was kind of not about much at all, a little bit about housing from memory. 
And at the end of that conversation, he said to me, look, Trevor, the current manager, been there for some years, had said he was wanting to retire and step down from the role as manager of the foundation. They'd been looking around for a while. And I think, to be honest, they must have got pretty close to the bottom of the barrel. But anyway, my name had kept coming up and would I be interested in the job? So that was very humbling, as I as, as say, to be um, to be offered that. And Stephen isn't a man that you would say no to lightly, not just because of what he was offering, but the opportunity, but for who he is. Massive respect for the integrity of, of Stephen and all that he's done. But to be fair, you know, he gave me the summer to go away and think about it, to see how I could extricate myself out of LifeWise without too much difficulty and yeah, I was very fortunate to start here in early 2014. So it's been a, an amazing opportunity and a steep learning curve. I used to say to people, after the first year or so, I could feel my brain actually growing. You know, I thought I knew some things about about the world and about how to do things, but the breadth of things that the Tyndall Foundation was involved in and continues to be involved in is pretty staggering and is a, it's a lovely intellectual challenge, if nothing else. Yeah, so that's how I came to be in the role. And toughest day in, in the office in, in that role or the, the stuff that's they find particularly difficult on a personal level? Oh, I think, you know, I, two things probably. One, we talked earlier on about saying no and extricating from relationships. I think that's still never easy and I hope it never is. So those are among the, the tougher days. And I think the other thing is just my own, I'm a pretty impatient person and the, just my sense when things aren't kind of going fast enough or why can't we do more now? Or And so they're not exactly tough days, but I find those marginally stressful. In comparison to many, many other jobs, possibly most jobs, this is not stressful in the normal course of events. Yes, hopefully we work hard. Hopefully, you know, we get stuff done. But I'm very well supported and very well looked after. And honestly, it's a blessing to have the job. And I think to, if I could speak on behalf of the team, I'd say, because I've heard them say it a lot, you know, I think that's a widespread view. Um, around around our team yeah and before you do what trevor did and, and maybe not not retiring your job but passing on the mantle what <laughs> do you are you focused on legacy like what your personal legacy will be amongst what the foundation does just out there in, in the community no no not at all and you know i think if anything i'm more conscious of the legacy that Stephen and margaret and the tyndall family might want to leave and, and i think that's in a small way part of my job is to support them to do that they're not interested much in leaving a big name legacy or anything like that. But, you know, it's more about reputation and what would they feel proud of and what could we feel proud of as a foundation that, you know, that they've been able to achieve. And there's already lots. So I, I certainly feel some sense of obligation and responsibility to continue that work on their behalf and on behalf of the Tyndall family generously, you know, generally, I should say. I mean, they, they put their name above the door. It's a brave thing to do. It says what you stand for and what we do here reflects on them to some extent. So I'm very conscious of that in supporting them to their reputations to be upheld and their legacy to be the one that we um, that we favour, definitely. John McCarthy, massive thank you for joining me on Purpose the Podcast. Thank you, Mark. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.